Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the start of yet another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, This is kind of a milestone week for the show. It is week 27 that I've personally been hosting the show from my house just outside the city of Decatur. Like a lot of you out there, I continue to essentially shelter in place, not go out to many places. And uh, so we continue doing the show uh, this way. And it occurred to me that as we start the second half of a year, it was a good time to bring back a friend of Political Rewind, Dr. Raymond Kotwicki. Dr. Kotwicki is the chief medical officer at Skyland Trail, which is one of the premier nonprofit mental health facilities in the United States. Dr. Kotwicki is a psychiatrist and uh, has a great educational background, University of Wisconsin Medical School, postgraduate training at Harvard, Boston University School of Medicine, and Emory University, where he earned a master's in public health. And um, Dr. Kotwicki is an adjective uh, faculty member at Emory University School of Medicine and at the Rollins School of Public Health. He's also received more honors than we can uh, talk about in the time that we have to introduce him for the show today. But many of you will recall that last spring, in in both April and May, we did shows with Dr. Kotwicki because I thought it was important to get a look at how we were all dealing emotionally and mentally with the pandemic. And back then, it felt like this was going to be a transitory thing that we were going to go through a matter of weeks, maybe a few months, where we would rise to the challenges of what it meant to change our lives so dramatically. Now it's clear that the pandemic continues and our lives seem to be altered dramatically and perhaps irrevocably. Um, So this is a great time to welcome Dr. Raymond Kotwicki back to Political Rewind for a conversation about where we all stand mentally and emotionally with the virus uh, today. Dr. Kotwicki, thank you so much for being back. We're really glad to have you back on the show today. Good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Let me start, if I may, though, by given Skyland Trail and the extensive work you do both inpatient and also outpatient treatments with adults dealing with mental diseases. Uh, how had, Can you give us just a sense of how things are going at Skyland Trail and what kind of impact the pandemic has had on your organization? Yeah, it's really been uh, uncharted territory, quite frankly. Um, we're seeing people kind of self-selecting into one of four groups, really. Um, the first group is people who've had an underlying mental illness for maybe years um, who are experiencing exacerbation in their symptoms because of the chronic anxiety associated with the pandemic and everything else that's going on in the world. The second group is um, sort of newly anxious and depressed, um, people who may not have had signs and symptoms of a mental illness previous to this, but who are now developing um, overt disability related to social isolation and lack of um, connectivity with other people and other things. 
And then the third group is um, really sort of what we would consider to be an, uh, an adjustment um, group. People who don't meet criteria for an overt mental illness, but who are feeling anxious, feeling um, stressed out, maybe feeling lackluster. Um, I fall into that category myself some days. Um, but, you know, those are people who I think can try to manage um, by doing things that are lifestyle modifications rather than getting serious psychiatric treatment. And then the fourth group is the one that surprises me the most, quite uh, honestly. It's the group of people who seem to be unaffected by what's going on in the world, um, people who are ignoring the news, people who um, like uh, being at home and isolated, who may be on the autism spectrum, for example. Um, and this is a, a fascinating group to me, but I think those are the four different um, paths that folks are, are finding themselves in, given everything that's going on in our world. So in a minute, I want to tell you about some of the things I've been experiencing, uh, and, and only because I think I'm probably not alone. I think there are probably many of our listeners who may be going through uh, similar experiences to mine. But before I do that, explain, you, you talked about some of the new people you're seeing who are experiencing anxiety, um, maybe some depression. How does anxiety manifest itself? When someone comes to Skyland Trail, whether they use the word anxiety or not, um, and they tell you they're having troubles, how does it manifest itself? Yeah, anxiety is um, pretty tricky to diagnose sometimes because it can mimic a lot of other diagnoses and, and symptoms. Um, we're seeing at Skyland Trail a huge increase in acuity of people who show up with what we eventually figure out is anxiety. Um, interestingly, from my perspective, the most common symptom of anxiety is not a psychological symptom at all. It's a physical symptom. So people with um, panic disorder, for example, oftentimes feel short of breath. They have heart palpitations, they get sweaty palms or uh, sweaty under the armpits. Um, they feel like, you know, there's a, a sense that they're going to die or of impending doom. And it's first blush when somebody shows up and they say, hey, I've been having um, stomach issues for the last six months. Um, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't automatically jump to a diagnosis of anxiety uh, disorder, but that really um, is a very common expression. And the relevancy of that, I think, Bill, is not just that it can be difficult to um, call something that is an anxiety problem actually anxiety. It's that there are clues, there are um, physical manifestations in many people because it um, might be uncomfortable to say that I'm feeling scared. It might not fit um, somebody's self-concept of being a very strong you know, person to admit that they're being affected so dramatically by things that are happening in the world. Um, and so oftentimes those psychic problems, the, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, the constant um, hypervigilance of what's going on in somebody's environment gets translated into somatic or physical symptoms. And we see that um, very, very commonly in our patients. Um, and I think across the board, you know, when I, I talk with my friends who are in the community, um, we're all having a lot more physical kinds of complaints than ever before, which I think really uh, links back to, to anxiety. So I want to follow up on some of that as we go through the conversation uh, today and, and talk to you about how you deal with people who are maybe experiencing some form. You say anxiety is hard to diagnose, um, but I think you just said it. We're all feeling to one degree or another either some kind of physical or emotional issues, to use a relatively neutral word, most of which I assume don't really need 
uh, treatment at a, at a, a place like yours. But, but right. you do, uh, on your website, offer some suggestions for how people can maneuver through these times a little bit more uh, pragmatically. And, and we'll get to that in a, in a little while. But, but as I said, I want you to give me a few minutes on your couch today, Dr. Kotwicki. I want to talk about <laughs> some of my honor. personal experiences. Thank you. Since the last time we saw each other and talked, um, I want to give you a sense of what I've been experiencing. And again, I say this because my guess is that a lot of our listeners are not having necessarily dissimilar uh, experiences. So, so let, me, let me start with this. Back in mid-March, when we really realized how serious the coronavirus was, that we were going to have to shelter in place, uh, it was the beginning of um, my doing our show from here. My wife now does her work out of our house. Our adult daughter has come home from Brooklyn, and she's doing her work. We all have separate workspaces in the house. And, and when this began, there was something kind of like a big adventure about some of this, uh, learning how to do the show by remote and having all of our panelists on the telephone, uh, realizing that I could explore ways to order groceries online. I didn't have to go to the supermarket, um, although I worry for the people who are forced to do those jobs of delivering those things. Um, we socialized a lot on Zoom with friends. And so for a while, well into the spring, this whole experience seemed to me to be, and here's the word, novel. <laughs> and I felt kind of proud that I was living up to the challenges that the pandemic presented. So first of all, I imagine there are a lot of people who at first approach this in a similar way, don't you think? Absolutely. And, you know, showing once yourself that you can do things that you hadn't done before is a really exciting thing for a lot of people. And once the, to use your term, novelty wears off and you get stuck in a routine doing things that um, you wouldn't have chosen if the circumstances were different, um, can become very disappointing and, and depressogenic um, over time. Yeah. And that's what's happening in, in my life, I think. So as an example, Although every now and then, my wife and I will make a Zoom appointment to talk to friends, have a cocktail with them on the computer, we're kind of becoming lethargic about that sort of thing. We're, we're, I think we're feeling more stuck than ever before. We're not doing a lot of ordering from all the great restaurants out there that are, have changed the way they do business, have great delivery services, or have come up with creative ways for you to pick up food and remain safe. So I guess the word I would use in terms of our personal and social life is to an extent, uh, in this house, we become kind of lethargic, as I said. Well, what do we do with that, doctor? Well, it really makes sense, Bill. You know, no matter how you slice it, getting takeout from the most delicious restaurant in town isn't as good as sitting there and having an experience inside the restaurant. Or having a cocktail over Zoom is okay, but it isn't equivalent to meeting your friends face-to-face -face and seeing their 
affect and how they interact with you in real time, in real person. And so there's a disparity, there's a delta between the best you can do in a situation um, in uh, uh, an isolative pandemic situation compared to what you would prefer to do and what we would all prefer to do if the circumstances were different. So I think that that disparity really makes sense. And um, the lethargy that you're describing that goes along with it um, seems to you know, be for a lot of people related to a sense of apathy. I don't really care. Um, it, you know, having cocktails over Zoom isn't really that important. It doesn't recharge me to the degree that I want to go through um, the effort to, you know, make it make it happen. Another piece that I, I'm hearing from people, and I, I feel this a little bit myself sometimes, is when those of us go through all the efforts and the inconveniences um, to make sure that we don't infect other people and we don't uh, propagate the, the viral spread, and then we see other people who don't follow those rules or don't feel the same um, compulsion to uh, you know, behave in that way, that disparity can be a little bit um, annoying um, and a little bit uh, um, sort of unfair, like there's um, some self-denial um, that we're choosing to make in order to protect our communities, but that feels really bad. So, you know, the, the antidote to this is to um, do something that we in psychiatry uh, call behavioral activation. The antithesis of lethargy is um, activity. And um, it sounds simplistic on one hand, but when somebody is not active, the inertia to continue to be inactive and to not engage and to perpetuate a very passive and disengaged way of um, dealing with things begets itself. And so um, making a conscious decision and an effort to be behaviorally activated, to maintain a schedule, to get up at a time that you would if you weren't in the situation, um, to schedule things that at the time don't sound like they're going to be as fun as you, you know, want them to be. Um, but to make a conscious effort to be physically active and moving is really the most important thing that any of us can do who um, is in a situation like the one you've described. That's interesting. So our producer, Sam Burmis dawes has been directing this show. Uh, he also works on our show Morning Edition before he turns to Political Rewind. And every day he has continued through the pandemic to get up, leave his apartment, go to our studios on 14th Street and do his job. So he's living uh, a professional life not dissimilar from what he always has uh, uh, dealt with. Whereas people like me, and I assume you're going in, there's no way you can be doing your work every day by remote. You have to be in your uh, offices, I assume, quite often, right? I do. And, um, you know, congratulations to Sam for making that decision. I even, Bill, goes so far as to every once in a while um, put on my suit and tie like I used to do. Um, and even if I'm just sitting, <laughs> you know, at my computer, it feels normal. It feels like I'm a part of something. Um, I actually really like coming into the office to uh, do work. And um, a piece of it is that having boundaries is a really important thing when people start to feel um, anxious and overwhelmed. And when I don't know if this is your case at, at home, Bill, but when you're when a lot of people are working from home, there's not a clear distinction between, you know, when you are at work and uh, doing things in, in your studio, in your case, and when you're on lunch break, many times those things bleed together and it becomes almost impossible to say, okay, at you know 12.01, I'm 
going to stop working and um, have uh, lunch with my wife and go on a walk and you know do things that are compartmentalized. When all that bleeds together, I think for a lot of people, it feels as though you never quit working or that there never are opportunities to do something that is different. Um, you beat me to the punch. That is precisely what I was going to say. I do maintain my regular uh, routine, uh, work routine. Um, I'm one of those early risers, and uh, I, I get up as early as I always have in the past, which is 4 a.m. Um, I read all the papers and, and other uh, materials I need to prepare for a show. I work out for an hour early every morning, and, and then I start getting set, really focusing on the show. And, and like you, although I don't put on a suit because I rarely wore a suit when I was in the studio, I do get completely <laughs> dressed. Uh, before I do the show, which means I also put on shoes. I, I, I can't quite imagine how people who are working out of their homes feel as professional when they're barefoot, to be honest, Dr. Conway. <laughs> it just seems to be a little dissonant there to me. I, but I all totally that said, agree. and then go, <laughs> so that, but, but here's, you also said something important about all that. But now, instead of getting in my car and driving the 15 minutes to my studio, I walk across the house to an office that I share with my dogs and sit down to do the radio show. And because there is not any real distance, you just referred to it, there are times when I find myself having to really shake my head to get as focused as I would be in an office setting. And I'm pretty proud of the work I do on the air. Every now and then I feel like I'm approaching the show in a kind of fuzzy-headed manner. And, and I wonder if there are people out there who are experiencing that in the same way that I am. I bet you there certainly are, Bill. Um, and I do want to talk with you about your insomnia at some point. If you get up at 4 o'clock every day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's that's a, a very good thing to maintain that routine. But, um, you know, when, when people don't have to engage their cerebral cortex, the part of your brain that um, allows people to have executive thoughts, to plan things, to detect patterns in random things that seem like there are, are no ways to connect the dots. Um, when people don't have to use that part of their brain so frequently, um, it really begins to become much more difficult to have those neurons or those brain cells fire when you do have to use them. And so, you know, without having um, a time to ramp up in your case, you know, driving from somebody's home to their office and listening to Led Zeppelin or books on tape or whatever the routine is in the car um, is a, a cue for a lot of people to say, okay, I'm going to shift from being in my comfortable, relaxed space at home to be um, in this uh, office space where I've got to be on full cylinders cognitively and be able to do my show and to think clearly and to ask interesting questions and all the other things. There, there's Those environmental cues are really important in order to make that frame shift for a lot of people. And so absent those cues, just walking across the hall um, or your house, um, I think it, it makes it more difficult to really uh, 
um, climb the pump, so to speak. Um, and I think a lot of people are feeling disconnected or, uh, you know, fuzzy, um, or that there is just a, 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 di a more difficult time than before all this started um, to be full throttle ahead. Um, and I think that that's a, a really understandable um, sort of sequela or ramification of all the changes that we have in our lifestyle. Okay, so I shouldn't feel unusual. I mean, people who listen to this show will recognize immediately if they're regular listeners that there are those days when I feel like I'm not putting sentences together very well, but I try to uh, minimize that whenever possible. So how do I deal with that? How do any of us who are working out of the house, moving from a bedroom across the way to a different bedroom where we've set up an office, what do we do to try to normalize our lives and change that frame of reference? Well, I think there are other innovative ways to be able to set those frame shifts and to maintain those boundaries. So if it doesn't mean, you know, getting into your car and driving to your office um, after you do your morning routine, might there be something else that you can um, commit to doing that would establish that boundary and that frame shift? We know from research, um, there was a, a great study in the British Medical Journal um, in May of last year where they looked at over, I think it was 157 thousand people in the UK. And the best way that they found um, for those that group of people in the research study to be able to make that frame shift and really reduce their anxiety was to have a very clear demarcation of some kind of physical activity. So you exercise, maybe it would be um, an interesting thing to change the time when you exercise so that that becomes the demarcation of when you're not in your home rest mode anymore, but that you're shifting into doing behavioral activation and working and um, thinking. Um, physical exercise is the best medicine that we have for mental health, quite frankly. And um, I think for a lot of people that can be um, a huge help. Okay, so let me take the other side of that equation. Uh, let's talk about people like Sam, um, who goes into a workplace every day. Let's talk about the Instacart workers, the Kroger Publix uh, uh, cashiers who are going to work every day, the sanitation workers who come here once a week and continue their jobs. They are working in some way. I think that our people at GPB feel fairly safe because the environment's been created pretty well for them. But there are a lot of people who are working in spaces where they have anxiety about what it means to expose themselves to the virus. They have to work. Are there ways that people like that can ameliorate the anxiety and fears they may feel? Well, I think on the one hand, those anxieties and fears are valid. Um, and, you know, depending upon what somebody's working environment is like, um, one has to be on guard, uh, so to speak, all the time. You know, you never know if a customer walking into the grocery store who's not wearing a mask is um, an asymptomatic carrier, and you could be putting yourself at risk. So um, there is some reality to that, unfortunately. And I, I wish that um, people would all be safe and, and do things that are evidence-based and shown to be helpful from a public health perspective to, to spread, uh, stop spreading the virus. Um, however, in situations where people are essential workers and they need to be in the office or their place of employment, um, having the opportunity to allow your brain to offline um, and to not worry, um, to not be hypervigilant, to uh, pay attention 
what everybody's doing, to always worry about how many times you've been washing your hands or if your mask is on the way it should be um, on your face or whatever the chronic level of stress is, we have to all make sure that there is a, a definitive break from the feelings that all of those things produce. So, you know, it varies for um, in, from individual to individual what can be the thing that allow um, somebody to say, okay, I'm going to worry for this amount of time, and then I'm going to allow myself the privilege of being relaxed. Um, and that's a really important skill that you, that people, um, it sounds silly, but you have to actually practice being relaxed when you're in a situation where there's low-level chronic stress all the time. So um, I know a couple of months ago when I was um, on your show and we were kind of joking about doing meditation, that's the absolute best way to um, have people practice being relaxed, to think about things only in the here and now, to be very focused on what's in your environment, um, when you're doing meditation, by definition, uh, uh, does not allow people to feel anxiety, which is a future-oriented thing. And so practicing that and saying to, to yourself, um, I'm going to uh, be worried until 5 o'clock, um, which is understandable and probably evolutionarily advantageous so that I don't get sick. And then at 5 o'clock, I'm going to do something that allows my um, anxiety to go away and my brain to shut down for a minute. Um, that's uh, that's a strategy that I think is very helpful for a lot of people, but it does take practice. Yeah, I I would imagine that's a very um, for some people a very difficult thing to do. I personally don't meditate. On the other hand, I can turn I can put in my plug in my headphones and uh, and listen to a Laura Nero album and take myself away from the the problems. And I guess that's my own form of meditation, Doctor. Yeah. And, you know, I think experimenting and figuring out what it is that works for you is incumbent on, on this whole, you know, suggestion working. Um, I, I don't want to suggest that meditation is the answer for everybody, but it's been, you know, studied. Um, and from a, a research perspective, it, it works for a lot of different people. But, um, you know, some people do physical things. Um, uh, sitting in a hot tub where, you know, you can relax your muscles and feel um, the physical somatic sensations that might work for uh, a different person. Or, um, you know, uh, calling a, a confidant and having a discussion about things that have nothing to do with the pandemic um, could work for a third. So it's just a, a little bit of an experiment to figure out what um, is truly meaningful for individual. But once it's identified, um, you know, maintaining that that time, that privilege in your day to allow yourself not to worry um, is the second step. Because um, I think, especially right. for people who are high functioning and um, reliable and diligent, there's almost a, a sense that by doing that, you're not working hard enough or that you're not taking things seriously enough or you know some kind of pejorative assumption that we project on ourselves. And I think um, the, the key to really truly having those things work to mitigate anxiety is to undo that thought inside somebody's head so that you give yourself permission to do that. All right. Um Let's do this, Dr. Kotwicki. Let's take our first break of the show. And when we come back, I have a lot more questions I'd like to ask you about how to preserve our emotional and mental health in the time of the pandemic. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Dr. Raymond Kotwicki, who is the chief medical officer at Skyland Trail, which is one of the country's premier nonprofit residential and uh, outpatient treatment organizations for adults with uh, mental illnesses. Um, We're talking about how we're all trying to make our way emotionally through the pandemic, which seems to go on endlessly. Um, Dr. Kotwicki, I was looking at your website, and we're going to post links to a couple of articles that are on your website. One is about what is anxiety, how do we deal with it, and another uh, is a terrific uh, uh, guide to uh, finding wellness in difficult times. But let me read you uh, what you have probably already know from the anxiety section. Anxiety is when someone worries about future events with uncertain outcomes. Well, now that we're more than six months into this and no longer can say, oh, well, good, by October, by September, by August, we'll be back to normal. We now have no idea what that means. We have no idea when our lives are going to resume the way they were before. And that in of itself is, I think, anxiety-provoking for a great many people, is it not? Absolutely. The ambiguity uh, is, in and of itself, probably one of the worst things related to the pandemic. If somebody were to say, this will be done on October 15th at 11.59 a.m., um, you know, people who otherwise might not feel like they have the, the capacity to keep going could tell themselves, well, I just have to get, you know, another month into this and then I can go back to the way things were beforehand. But we have no idea. And so when there, you know, is an ambiguous course of events and there's um, what we call intermittent reinforcement, you never really know when the next shoe is going to drop. That is anxiety making. It produces anxiety in and of itself, not knowing those things. So it occurs to me that um, it's an it's when we're faced with that kind of anxiety or that kind of uh, sense of sort of surreal uh, view of what's happening in our world around us that there's a, and now I'm going to block the author's name, but, but a wonderful essay writer, Annie, I'll think of it, uh, wrote a book called, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Uh, the story is that when her brother was young, and she, she was a little older than he was, he was supposed to turn in a book for his school where uh, drawings of like a hundred different birds that uh, he could copy out of uh, 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 reference books or whatever, and he failed to do that. On the night before the assignment was due, he had not begun. And he went to his father feeling anxiety over having failed in this assignment. And he said, what do I do? And his father said to him, buddy, you take it bird by bird. And I love that story and think it's an absolute maxim for how we have to live our days right now. Yes? Absolutely. Um, and in, in medicine, we have a, a very similar analogy, um, which is how do you eat an elephant um, bite by bite? And I, I like the sort of idea that um, managing things that are 
smaller components of a larger, seemingly insurmountable task um, can be one way that um, people can feel like they have some control over their destiny in the future. Because the, the ramification of not feeling bad is to try to over control everything else, right? So if you know we're all in this kind of helpless uh, situation where um, we don't know when all of this is going to end, we don't know how to help, we don't know what to do um, in, in order to you know, help our neighbor and, and our communities. Um, our tendency, I think, as a, a human being is then to try to transfer the need to feel like we can do those things into other areas of our life. And so we're seeing um, people who otherwise are not hyper controllers um, in situations where because they feel frustrated not being able to conceptualize what it would be to eat an elephant entirely, um, they're moving and transferring that desire for control into other areas um, that can be you know, damaging to relationships and, and other people. So, uh, by the way, Sam just whispered in my ear that the book I'm thinking of is called Bird by Bird by uh, the great essayist Anne Lamoth, and I don't want to not give her credit for what I think is a wonderful little story. Um, Amelia Brock, our senior producer, was uh, saying uh, before we started our conversation that she's a very social person, typically. Uh, she's, for the most part, sheltering in place, and so hasn't seen friends the way she is used to seeing them. Uh, so... Doctor, how, if maybe Zoom isn't uh, any longer satisfying to us, but how important mm -hmm. is, it, is it for us to try to figure out a way to maintain social contact? And what ways does it harm us if we're not doing that, if we're isolating ourselves from our friends? Well, I think this is really the million dollar issue for a lot of people. And we're seeing it, um, Bill, especially in children. Um, so many schools are having to develop uh, what they're calling an emotional intelligence curriculum um, to you know, teach uh, children and even early adolescents who are virtually in school from home how to recognize when somebody's facial expression is angry or how to pick up on um, nonverbal you know, cues to be able to understand the context of a social interaction. Um, and so there's really, I mean, honestly, a, a, a stunted development um, barrier that we're seeing from all the virtual social interactions that people who have not yet developed the social skills are experiencing. And so my concern, you know, for a, a I don't know how, how old your producer is, but for a 45-year-old adult who had the opportunity developmentally to be able to figure those things out and to have um, trial and error, that's one thing. But if you're an eight-year-old and you don't know how to read facial expressions and you don't know how to understand inflection that has nuances in somebody's vocal tone, that really scares me. And I wonder what um, in the you know next generation when those kids are adults, uh, what social is going to be like. Um, there are, are new data that are emerging, um, sadly, from research about um, exactly what we're talking about. And people are um, seeming to be less empathic. Um, than they have been before. Um, maybe the lack of a, a true social connectivity with somebody else makes it um, easier not to try to put yourself in that other person's shoes. Um, and I think, um, you know, lack of empathy is very problematic. It, it certainly can result in making decisions that are harmful um, to others. Um, and we're, we're seeing an, a, a relationship that isn't quite a linear relationship, but there's a causality associated with 
um, overuse of virtual um, connectivity with social media, with Zoom, um, even quite honestly with uh, telephone calls, um, and an emergence of um, all mental illnesses um, based on um, the amount of time that people spend doing social things that way rather than in person. So, you know, my, my advice to everybody is um, in a safe way, try to figure out um, if there are meaningful uh, conversations and meaningful connections that um, somebody can have in a, a more realistic kind of um, way. Uh, I don't want anybody to put themselves at risk, obviously, but um, my neighborhood, just as a, a silly example, we do, um, you know, front porch uh, uh, happy hours where we, we all sit on our, our stoops and kind of across the road have conversations with masks on and it's not perfect but that that's you know better for me at least than it is to um, have a, a zoom experience with the same people so um, I'm, I'm really worried See, that, about that's this. I didn't mean to cut you off but thank you for that what I was going to say is when you talk about front porch porch socials that's that's what I refer to. That's when I think about what the earliest days of the virus and and living in sheltering or in place was, was like. It was finding new creative ways to uh, continue have some sort of normalcy in life. So the fact that your neighborhood has adjusted and figured out how to do that is a, is a wonderful and very hopeful uh, sign about our ability to adjust. And it takes effort. You know, somebody has to be the neighborhood organizer and make it happen and make, make sure people know what, what's going on. And it, there's an extra step in there um, that didn't exist when you could just call somebody up and go get a cup of coffee uh, on the spur of the moment. So the, it, it's, it's a new normal. It's a different world. But I think the, the risk of not having those meaningful social interactions is too great. And across the, the board, yeah. in every disease state that we know of in psychiatry, just as um, to, to speak to you know my area, um, when there is lack of social connectivity, the prognosis and the outcomes are worse. And I, I think we can generalize that um, statement to people who don't have a mental illness, but who you know crave that kind of social connectivity. Okay, let's move on to a different subject. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that there are three of us sheltering in place here. Um, my wife, uh, our grown daughter, our 23-year-old daughter, home from Brooklyn for the time being, and me. Um, fortunately, our son, our, our older child, is he and his wife are living uh, separately. We see them in the front yard sitting uh, socially distant from us. But so let's mm -hmm. talk about... We have managed, all three of us, fortunately continue to be very, very busy with our work. This show is, is, thank goodness, very demanding. I love every minute of working on it, but it keeps me very uh, specifically occupied in a major way. Same thing with my wife and my daughter's work. So we've managed to negotiate uh, our separate spaces. We don't interfere with each other during the day. But I would imagine that there are families that are really struggling with the dynamic of being stuck together. And I would guess you're seeing some of that at uh, Skyland Trail, yes? 
We certainly are. And it's important, um, and I don't mean to be glib, but it's important to be able to slam a door now and again, um, you know, and to <laughs> separate yourself, <laughs> uh, to separate yourself from a situation where you find your temper coming short, um, where you need to have a little bit of uh, alone time. And if you don't have that metaphoric ability to slam a door and go into a different room, um, that that just fuels the fire of increased anxiety, increased impulsivity, maybe some, um, you know, uh, outcomes where you might say something that you wouldn't normally say that you would regret later or whatever. So when people physically don't have that opportunity or if they metaphorically don't have the opportunity to have that safe space and that distance, um, it can really uh, fan the, the flames and, and lead to um, outbursts and other problems. Um, based on, on on that close time together. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of Political Rewind out of the way today and then come back and talk more with um, our guest, uh, Dr. Raymond Kotwicki of Skyland Trail. We'll be right back. Dr. Kotwicki, um, I, I do want to put up on our social media platforms uh, the links to two articles that you have on the Skyland Trail website. One of them is Finding Wellness in Difficult Times, and it, it's, it's really uh, fairly uh, uh, straightforward. It, it suggests activities that we can do to um, make our time uh, easier and maybe more fulfilling. I love the fact that one of the items on it is Explore the Arts, and it refers to the fact that while Broadway theaters have shut down, we still have the internet and there are options for watching uh, uh, theater on, uh, on the web. Uh, we're a big theater family. I think that's a nice idea, but I don't, it, it's hard to get into plays on the web, I think. But then you also talk about improving your physical uh, health by maybe taking an online, or your mental health by taking an online class. You've already said that we can, we should exercise, maybe take a yoga class online. I mean, you have a bunch of really good recommendations for ways that people can shake off whatever lethargy they may be feeling that's similar to what I fall into every now and then. So we'll recommend that to our uh, listeners, and I appreciate that. Well, thanks for the uh, um, connection there, Bill. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly don't want to sound bossy and tell people this is what you have to do. But putting a bunch of options out there and seeing what sticks is kind of like throwing spaghetti against the wall. You got to, you know, see what resonates uh, for you. Yeah. Um, you know, just to, if, if I, I may, to respond to your comments about the arts, um, one of the things that, that we've done, that I've done personally, is I was so disappointed um, that I wasn't able to go on a European trip this year that I, I used my frequent flyer miles to get a ticket, you know, eight months ago, and we were going to go to Italy and, and so on and so forth. Oh. And so during my staycation um, at home, we took all of the books that we had um picked up from other art museums in years past and every day we would go through one of the books and kind of talk about the experiences um and make 
food that went along, whether we were, you know, having French food, looking at the Louvre book or Italian food, looking at the Borghese book or whatever. Um, and it wasn't the same. And I'll, you know, I'll credit your comment um, that way, but it was good enough. It was transportive. Um, and even though I wasn't um, able to smell the air in Italy and remind myself of all the you know fun times that I've had there before, there was enough of a connection and enough of that trigger of um, memories that um, it felt like it was different than just sitting in my living room. So you know, finally, I, I think, love that. Yeah, it was really unexpectedly fulfilling, and I think you know, for everybody, there's something like that. Um, and if you can identify what that is and, and go forward with it, I think um, the, the benefit is really there. I love that. Um, all right. I want to read something to you and get your response to it, if I may. Um, when I was planning for this show, I thought, gee, I'd really like to write something really meaningful and a little profound, if possible, about what it's like to experience the pandemic. And I thought, well, <laughs> there are other people who could probably do it much better than I. And, and so I found an essay that was written by the great, great Indian uh, novelist and essayist, Arundhati Roy, uh, whose country, India, of course, is experiencing tremendous problems with coronavirus, second only at this point to the United States. She wrote this back in April before we knew how bad things were going to get in India. But I'm going to take a minute to read this because I think it tells us something about the pessimism and maybe the optimism of what we're dealing with right now. Here's what she says. Who can use the term gone viral now without shuddering a little? Who can look at anything anymore, a door handle, a cardboard carton, a bag of vegetables, without imagining it swarming with those unseeable, undead, unliving blobs dotted with suction pads waiting to fasten themselves onto our lungs? Who can think of kissing a stranger, jumping on a bus, or sending their child to school without feeling fear? Who can think of ordinary pleasure and not assess its risk who among us is not a quack epidemiologist, virologist, statistician, and prophet? And even while the virus pro proliferates, who could not be thrilled by the swell of birdsong in cities, peacocks dancing at traffic crossings, and the silence in the skies? Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Wow, that's poetic and, and really sentient. Um, you know, through difficult times can emerge really innovative and wonderful outcomes. Um, and I, I admire the perspective of looking, um, reframing really uh, a horrible situation in a more positive way. We're seeing that um, in medicine. And one of the things that I think has been a, a, an un predicted and really lovely outcome of all of this is the utility of telemedicine. Um, we're able now to use um, virtual uh, assessments and, and telemedicine to allow people who historically never have had medical care before access it. Um, unfortunately, there are lots of people who don't um, and don't, you know, use the telemedicine platforms or feel 
um, at this point that uh, that's not an option for them. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could um, expand the reach so that when people are struggling, um, again, from a, a psychological point of view, that it is easy for them to connect with somebody, to get some coaching, and to be able to talk about what's going on, um, rather than having a bunch of hoops to jump through um, to engage with a therapist. One of my 18-year-old um, patients uh, that with whom I was having a, a telepsychiatry appointment um, a couple of months ago finally told me that he had been um, vaping. And I was I was shocked and, and sort of surprised. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, I've been seeing you um, several times, you know, every week and sometimes more for the last four months. What? Why did you tell me this now when I ask you every single time? And he replied, well, there's some distance. And so I'm not... Um, sitting across from you in your office, and I feel like I can actually <laughs> divulge more personal information than when I was looking at your face. Um, and I thought, well, that's unexpected. <laughs> um, and you know, I yeah, think for yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of younger people, in particular, um, having that access um, through. Um, different platforms and different mechanisms to be able to engage with these old guys like me, that's wonderful. And I am convinced that we wouldn't have been able to figure that out or to go forward with it had this not happened. I do want to point out um, that everything you said is so correct and makes such sense. But like everything else with the virus, this exposes another one of the many disparities that we're dealing with right here in the state of Georgia, it telehealth works if you live in an area where you've got good internet. Unfortunately, we have so many parts of the state where broadband isn't easily available. And, and it's just another example of, of the difficult political issues um, and social issues that we have to contend with here in Georgia. And the pandemic is exposing them left and right, don't you think? You're absolutely right. And I think it is exacerbating the inequalities that existed for decades, centuries before um, people chose to look at it. Um, and, you know, I think from a mental health perspective, it's difficult for anybody to say, hey, I need help and I, I'm going to have a, a therapy appointment and this is going to be something that I'm going to commit to doing. But when you add all of the other barriers that people who um, don't have resources or people who um, have increased stigma because of the social groups to which they belong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, the disparities in our social justice really rear their ugly heads. And so, you know, something that uh, comes very easily to a lot of people who enjoy Wi-Fi and internet access and a safe place to be able to have a private conversation and do telepsychiatry visits, that's really not the, the case. It's not the narrative for way too many people in the world, um, from my point yeah. of view. Um, thank you for, for pointing that out. I think it's really important that we do that. We're, we're coming down to the end of our show, Dr. Kotwicki. Um, and, but before we leave, with like the last 30 seconds or so, I didn't ask you. I, I talked about me, 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 me. How are you doing? You've got, you know, just give us a very quick snapshot. How is life for you in this pandemic? <laughs> well, I really appreciate your asking. You're much more interesting than I am, Bill. So I really would uh, prefer to talk about you. But since you ask, and I, I feel like um, it's just between you and me. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> I, I've had a, a rougher go of it recently. And I think, um, you know, for a couple of reasons, we're seeing so many patients at Skyland Trail. And I'm, 
I'm delighted and really privileged um, that we've been open through the entire pandemic and we've kept our doors open and our lights on to help people. But we've we've really been busier than ever to the point where we have a waiting list of patients who need and deserve treatment and we can't get them in because um, there are just so many people who need help right now. Um, and, and that's disappointing to me and it, it really, um, it's saddening, I suppose. It's an indictment of the American um, mental health system from my point of view. There were a, a thousand scallon trails in Georgia and people could access care there. Um, I would be in a much better place. Um, but that said, I, well, I feel I really fortunate that I can do this work um, and I feel safe. Um, I'm, I'm all the things that I feel public health uh, demands of us. Um, and um, I'm making it through, although I wish I could be more helpful to many, many more people. Well, Dr. Kotwicki, as we run out of time, um, I will tell you that uh, I always appreciate having conversations with you and you really help me kind of process my own issues uh, these days. And I think for a lot of our listeners, they are very grateful to you as well. So, Dr. Raymond Kotwicki, thank you for uh, being here for Political Rewind. I'm going to get back up off my, of your couch and go off and uh, get back involved in the world. Um, we're back again <laughs> tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Until we see you then, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please get a flu shot. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>